This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, today we are talking to Greg Little, continuing with Origins of the Gods. And we had a phenomenal time last week with Andrew Collins. And this time, Greg, who is an equally legendary figure in the world, and certainly in the world of Dreamland, He's been on this show many times, I think as early as 2005, uh, and uh, has, I guess, the most recent show we did with Greg and, and with Andrew was Denisovan Origins, about the mysteries of the Denisovan people. Greg is the author of more than 30 books. He's going to catch up with me if I'm not careful. Uh, including Dennis of an Origins with Andrew Collins. He has been around the block. You've probably seen him on the, Discover the National Geographic Channel, Discovery, the History Channel, MSNBC, and all kinds of places. And I am very excited today because we're going to go down a completely different path with Origins of the Gods than we did with Andrew, where we were talking about the mysterious remains and uh, the meaning of the ruins. We're, we're not taking a different tack. We're going to talk about the mind of the ancient world. What was it? What have we lost? Because we've lost something big, and it's getting worse, not better. Greg Little, welcome to Dreamland. I'm very glad you're back. Thanks, Whitley. It's great to see you again. I'm glad you're still around. Uh, I'm glad I'm still around too. Uh, and I know Andrew was uh, Andrew was probably pretty interesting with all that. And uh, his part was about shamanism and how it led into or ancient shamanism uh, and how it leads to everything weird, the entire paranormal, UFOs, whatever. But it's right. a pleasure to be here, and it is a rabbit hole. There's, This is a rabbit hole, so no, I'm ready I, for it. I live in a rabbit hole. I live in many rabbit holes, and I think you probably do too. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we're here, because that's where you find the real world, down the rabbit hole. The, the world we live in and that has been made in the especially by the western mind was characterized by one of the visitors many years ago when she said children of the northern people you wander in eternal darkness hmm. that's what this is but let's get out of eternal darkness and let's start <laughs> with some starlight let's go to hoven weep can you tell us a little bit about what it is and what it was like there and also what they did yeah, well, you started out about the saying we're going to talk about the ancient mindset and what in the world was driving these people. And Hovenweep is where I chose to begin that search. I mean, what the heck were these people doing? Hovenweep is a site in southeastern Utah. It's about 75 miles or so south of Skinwalker Ranch, uh, which is pretty famous now. So Hovenweep is an ancestral Puebloan site, which is the preferred term for the Anazazi. Uh, so it was an Anazazi site. But again, like I say, they, they like to be called the ancestral Puebloans because they're still there. Uh, the descendants of them are still there. So it is a site that is kind of spread out. There's five main sites, but the main part of it is in this deep canyon. And it has a tower at the base of the canyon and numerous other stone structures in there. And I mean, it's kind of weird. So you got this canyon that goes down a couple hundred feet at the base of this canyon. You have this three and a half to four story stone tower that has these tiny little windows in it. And the windows they know are aligned to the sun and the moon and certain stars. So what was going on here was that it was a place for shaman and medicine people to go and perform various rituals. Being in the earth matters. Being It's literally like getting grounded. It's almost uh, an electrical thing because when they performed rituals, the preferred way to do it was to have your bare feet 
in the actual soil, touching the soil. So even the mound builders, we'll move from Hovenweep a minute. The mound builders, we know a whole lot about their rituals that they performed all across North America anyway. Well, I'm not talking about Central and South America, just North America. But what they did when they performed certain rituals is they removed the sod. They would take the sod off and expose bare soil. And they'd make these circular formations and they would sit around the edges of the circle, just like they did in the Southwest in what are called kivas. K-I-V-A-S, which is like a ceremonial structure in the ground. So they did that to connect with a higher spiritual force. Uh, it, there's some scientific evidence of the spiritual force. Uh, physics talks about the Schumann resonance, S-C-H-U-M-A-N, which is the ambient electromagnetic resonance that the Earth generates and the earth reflects. Uh, that's what we evolved in. That's what you can get attuned to when you go into a place like Hovenweep and get down in that canyon and get grounded. So that's kind of a beginning of it and we'll see where it goes. That's a, okay, when we get back, Free Dreamlanders are going to take a tiny break. Um, it actually won't be tiny. But in any case, we'll take a short break. And when we get back, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the relationship between body and earth and why it is that they felt it so necessary to connect with the planet and what that meant to them. We'll be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me, it's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. There's a new world coming if we can take it. What does that mean? The first part of the message is if we can take it for ourselves on our own terms. The second part of the message is, can we bear the newness and the huge expansion of human consciousness that is going to be involved? Can we take it? A new world. It doesn't mince words. It tells the good, the bad, and the ugly like it is. And it leaves a message behind. Can you do this? Do you want to? Do we have an alternative? Right now, at this point in history, mankind is either going to get a lot bigger or not. I choose to go forward. I choose to live for and in the future. I choose the future. A new world. We can take it. Available in hardcover, softcover, audiobook, and Kindle. We're back with Greg Little. Uh, you can reach Greg. He doesn't really have a website, but the easiest way to find out about his doings, so he has told me, is to Google him, to Google Gregory L. Little. Not Greg Little, but Gregory L. Little. And you will, everything that is Greg Little related is going to come right up in your Google, and you can take it from there. 
The book is Origins of the Gods. I regard it as essential reading for every anyone who is, don't worry about, we'll, we'll have that up. You don't need to worry about putting it up. Uh, uh, essential reading for anyone who is seriously interested in not just the past, but the journey of their own souls. And in this is something we have to recover. We've lost it. Uh, now, what happened? What was it like at Hoovenweep for you and Laura? I believe it's your wife, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, you've done a lot of work together. And what was it like for the two of you when you were there? How did it feel? Well, in the book, I said we were there 30 some years ago, and that's true. And 30 some years ago, we were in this frenetic search for mounds and sites. And so we went on this long trip and got went to places, took pictures and got out as fast as we could because we did it in the winter. So we only had so much time. So we were there and I really I found it interesting 30 some years ago. But this time when we got there, it was quiet and it's hard to describe total quiet. It's really difficult for people to understand that because nowhere in modern society anymore is it totally quiet. Uh, about the best you can do to experience that is get into a room somewhere, go have a hearing test, close that room up that they put you in that soundproof room and just listen. It was amazing how quiet it was. The other thing is this, there's no, uh, you won't you don't pick up cell phones there is no ambient no uh, electromagnetic fields that are produced by humans there unless you're carrying a cell phone that is on uh so i think that it's an easier way to attune to the earth's forces so what we have today this is a, what i wrote in this book uh, origins of the gods is that we live in an electromagnetic cesspool and this is so important. Medicine calls it electrosmog. That's the actual term in the medical literature. And it's linked to, at least right now, there are many mental health and medical professionals who believe this proliferation of electromagnetic devices everywhere and the cell towers everywhere, whether it's G5 or you know, 5G or 4G or 3G, whatever it is, that these cell towers and the proliferation of radio waves and TV waves and all that, it is pollution. And it is affecting us at a cellular level. And I believe that. Uh, it may be linked to an increase in ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety, depression, don't know. But Hovenweep, it was your mind is clear totally clear because it's quiet very very quiet you can hear a crow if it's just w moving around in a tree you can hear that and it's amazing it's something we just don't experience anymore and that's a way to get back to nature so it's it's not really a tourist site then it is but it is so far out of the way that very few people go there it is a national park so, well it's not a national park it's a national historic site there is a visitor center. You can walk around in it. There are five associated sites. Many of them are in, others are in canyons. The main site has this really deep canyon now. But yes, you can visit it, uh, but it's very difficult to get to. It's very remote. There's nothing around it. That's, that's the point. So if you're going to go, you got to go early to get out of there on time. Yeah. Uh, now, when, um, when you went there, you what? Let me ask you this: What what were the the windows pointing at? What exactly? Well, there's okay. So they already know that the windows are aligned to the uh, the solstices and the equinox. Uh, the stellar the the alignments to stars other than the sun. The sun's a star, but the alignments to those are debatable. They don't really know for sure. I've actually decided that I'm going to run some statistical computations on it, maybe for the next book. I'm not sure. But uh, the moon's movements also, the moon makes a, a cycle that it takes 18.61 years to complete. Uh, and I discussed that in the book too. Uh, and it basically means that it takes the moon 18.61 years to return to the exact same place in the sky. And it's a way to predict eclipses, 
Um, it's very good at predicting eclipses, but also the moon's standstills. So those are encoded into many sites, including well, you mentioned Hopewood. you go into the hexagon in the, in the mound site. Yeah, the octagon. Yeah, the octagon. octagon. I mean, yes, right. octagon. Yeah. I was going to say, wait a minute, a hexagon can't work for that. Well, there actually is a hexagon. There's a mound uh, in Alabama, a giant mound that was made into a hexagon, which is bizarre. It's funny you brought that up. Nobody's ever asked me that before. But there is a hexagon mound uh, in Alabama. Why, but yeah, I wonder the, why it was made as a hexagon. I have no idea on that one. I've I've had clashes with the archaeological people that run it uh, because in my mound encyclopedia, I wrote what they put on their placard that is there. And they said, well, we don't believe that's true anymore. And I said, well, you got it on your placard. And they said, well, we just can't change those things. So that's uh, another <laughs> story. But yeah, yeah, well. uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't I know the significance of the octagon the eight-sided mound site in Newark, Ohio, that charted the 18.61 years in the moon's movements. And it's a gigantic formation. If you've never been there, and I'm talking to everybody listening, if you've never been to Newark, Ohio, and go to the mound builder sites there, there are two incredible places to go. You will, you've got to go. You will be overwhelmed. When we took Andrew Collins there, Andrew was actually living in Avebury at the time, and we snuck him in by a hospital so he wouldn't be able to see it till we actually walked up to the edge. And he stood there looking at this gigantic circle attached to an octagon. When I say it's a circle, it has walls forming a circle. The walls are about 16 feet high, walls of earth perfect circle. Then it connects to a 50-acre octagon. At each of the eight points in the octagon, there's a flat-top pyramid mound. But Andrew stood there and went, oh my God, you could get a dozen Stonehenges in this. What were they thinking here? Yeah. But what it is, it, it's a permanent structure that cannot easily be destroyed that predicts the eclipses perfectly, built 2,500 years ago. It's amazing. Yeah, Andrew's a remarkable person. I've walked Avebury with Andrew and Anne, and it was a, he's, he's got a lot of magic in him. Uh, there's no, yeah. no other way to describe it. So see, hearing his reaction is, it's a lovely, lovely thing. And, you know, Free Dreamlander, speaking of reactions, you're going to react very positively to what you're about to see. This is a brief excerpt from an interview with two contactees who had an 11-day close encounter experience and are now willing to speak about it, really, for the first time. To hear their whole interview and many others, subscribe to unknowncountry.com. Here's the excerpt. Did you see the man's face? Yes. Actually, that one is very clear to me. It was kind of longish, and uh, he didn't look—he didn't look completely human. But he, because he had very, very thin hair, almost non-existent. But he was young. I believe that it was kind of blonde, and he was very tall, like six, at least six feet. And he was so thin that he looked kind of strange. And what happened then? Well, he wanted me to to go with him or to stay with him. He wanted me to stay with him on the ship. And I'd been married for six months. And I wasn't about to go running off to stay on the ship. Now, surely you want more. You must want more. And there is more. Not only this contactee interview, but many others, many of them just as extraordinary, on unknowncountry.com, plus everything else that we offer, my audio books, the meditations, the talks on the key, William Henry's wonderful revelation show in its entire run, Anne Strieber's brilliant and magical, mysterious powers, and so much more. 
hours and hours of listening pleasure. Learn from the meditations on the site. Really learn because they're real and they're valuable. Subscribe to unknowncountry.com right now. Go to unknowncountry.com. Click on the subscribe tab. We are running very low on new subscribers now, and that should not be. It should not be happening. So you do it. You go there and you do it today. We're talking to Greg Little. You can find him on Google, Gregory L. Little. The book is Origins of the Gods by Greg and by Andrew Collins. Uh, We talked to Andrew last week. And now we're talking to Greg about the mind of the ancient world and how it was different. Greg, could you characterize, these were people who lived in and of nature. They were part of nature, not separate from it. What happened? How did we end up like we are? Do you have any ideas about that? Well, sure, I have ideas about it. Uh, They're belief system is so fundamentally different from the European belief system. If you just think about when the first Europeans came in, Native Americans had no concept of ownership of land. They inhabited land. They had no concept that this forest belonged to them. They simply utilized the resources as they needed to. They didn't kill animals for fun or sport. They killed for food. Uh, very, very different. Europeans had the idea that resources are exploited, you use them up, you use as much as you want, you don't worry about nature. Uh, Native Americans believed everything was spiritual, everything has a spiritual entity, which actually goes to their cosmology, because in their cosmology, it began with the singularity, and this singularity was a point of pure spiritual energy, and that's the actual term. I, I didn't I didn't make that term up singularity. I know physics uses it, but so did they. So they said this singularity of pure spiritual energy developed two opposing forces, almost like a yin yang symbol. And then it expanded, expanded instantly and created the physical universe. And so in their idea we are supposed to harmonize with these two spiritual forces that I talked about. And of course, a singularity can't have two opposing forces. And that is what caused it to explode or create the Big Bang or whatever. So it started out a pure, pure point of spiritual energy. It developed these two in harmonizing but in opposition forces one of which is creation, the other one is entropy or disorder. Things fall apart, that's what it means. These two forces were known as the upper world and the lower world. In the middle of them was the physical world. The physical universe in this conception is a three-dimensional space that is a double-sided mirror. And what the double-sided mirror does is it reflects the power of this lower world, which is entropy, which is one of the two forces constantly in play. And it reflects the upper world, which is the power of order or creation. So things are created, whether it's human beings or animals or trees, whatever, things are created. And then immediately when they're created, they begin the process of entropy of falling apart. And when they fall apart, they go back to their most primordial point, and then they are used again in creation. So that's the great cycle here. But they had this idea, this belief, this is what they were told, is that they were here to harmonize with the upper world force of creation and the lower world force of entropy, to harmonize with it and appreciate it. And it's pretty unique to Native American populations. I'm speaking specifically about the North American populations and probably uh, Siberian shaman who are still there and practice the same basic belief system. So that's kind of the, the, the a summary of what their basic belief was. But we are here to harmonize. And if you're harmonizing with nature, you can't destroy it. You simply can't destroy it. So in in, in that sense... If you take all this together, I've been asked, like, well, why didn't they build stone houses? Why didn't they put up big stone buildings and so on? 
why didn't they develop the wheel? That's always that's one that I hear all the time. Well, because they knew they were going to move regularly in their harmonizing with nature. Again, this is unique to North American mound building and and uh, Native American Indian cultures just here. They knew they were going to move regularly. And they also didn't believe much in possessions. If you know much about them, they shared possessions. They shared things even with with the Europeans that came in. They readily traded uh, because they didn't have this concept of cheating other people or taking advantage of them, which, of course, hurt them in the long run. So that that's a kind of a summary of it. Uh, they had a totally different belief system. Uh, I've thought a lot about this thing about ownership of land. We don't really own land. I I don't own anything on my house except if I don't pay my regular rent, which I call taxes. It's like I don't own it anymore. We don't really own anything, but they knew that to begin with. So they were ready to move. They utilized resources. When they were ready to move, they just picked up the little they had and moved, and they they stayed there a while, utilized those resources, and then they would move back. That is how they survived. It was very harmonious with nature, something I don't think people can conceive of today. No, I I think that we have lost a lot. And we're going to get into the, the uh, into archetypes and the soul and what we need to do to regain what we've lost, because we can. We don't have to be this way. Uh, now, but before we go on, I want to take a, another kind of a journey. One of the most fascinating experiences I ever had in my interviewing life, which is now a pretty long one, was a 2003 interview that we did on Atlantis. You had written a book, I believe, about Edgar Cayce's predictions about Atlantis and analyzed their validity, basically, and it was just fascinating. And I'm leading up to this question. What happened to us? Because we have lost a whole way of being. You, you look around the world at these exquisite monuments that we've just been talking about that are so deeply related to the movements of, of nature and the movements of the sky. You look at the engineering skills, the fortress at Sacsayhuaman in uh, Peru, uh, the platform at Baalbek, the pyramid, mm. so many of these things that we can't even conceive of how to build today. And you know, forget all of the nonsense that's been written about them and how they are explained away. They're explaining the way is not explaining them. There's a difference. But what what happened here? Greg, I think you're one of the best people I can imagine to ask that question. Uh, human nature and um, the, I, I hate to say it, uh, European ideas, uh, the belief system, but human nature. We're essentially uh, pleasure-pain machines. We seek out pleasure. We avoid pain. Seeking out pleasure means I mean, look at my background here. I don't know if everybody will be able to see it. Uh, this is my office. It's a very comfortable room. Uh, I'm away from the weather. I can open up some some windows here and I can see the weather. But uh, when I travel, uh, I'm in a vehicle, a metal box, basically insulated. Uh, I wear shoes to insulate myself from the ground. I tend to not walk on grass very much to begin with, which I think most people avoid doing. Um, it, we're pleasure pain machines, and we have we have been allowed and even encouraged to follow pleasure and pain. And that is, uh, for example, it is pleasurable for kids to uh, watch and play video games and to watch TikTok, little 30-second, 10-second, 15-second vignettes that people put on, and it's causing short attention span. But what it does is it it puts a releases a bit of dopamine in the brain. It feels good, uh, just like getting likes on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Uh, it's a dopamine rush. 
I think it's human nature. I think we are built to have that. Uh, we're built to make things easier and easier and easier. And that's why I don't think we could build Saxuaman or any of those sites today, simply because it would be too much work. We do something much easier. We don't build many permanent structures anymore. Uh, they still do in England, but we don't do it here much. We we build a building for like a stadium for $500 million and 10 years later, uh, it's obsolete. So we have to tear it down and rebuild a new one. That's going on all the time. So I think it's really we're pleasure pain machines uh, and the direction that we've gone. I'm just looking around at all the electronic devices I have, all of the all the stuff. Um uh, it's human nature, Whitley. That's that's really what it is. You have to want to harmonize with nature to stay in harmony with nature. You have to want to do it. And most people don't want that. Most people don't believe in a soul anymore. A lot of people don't believe in an afterlife. Skeptics will tell you you're stupid to believe in a soul or an afterlife, even though there's no evidence that what they're saying is is correct. Uh, all the evidence points to something existing, energy or whatever. So I don't have an answer for you that's going to make you happy. Uh, it's just the way it is. No. Well, let's now talk about the two souls and the life journey, the life soul and the free soul. That's a wonderful part of Origins of the Gods. And just at this moment, in this interview, it's the perfect time to talk about it. Can you tell us a oh. little bit about this wisdom of the life no. soul and the free soul? Love to. Uh, that's some of my favorite stuff. If you go back to when I talked about the uh, the singularity, the point of singularity, and when it basically exploded and created an upper world, which is just a force, and a lower world, which is an opposing force that they're kept in balance, and then the middle world is a physical world. Well, I said that humans were put here to harmonize with it in their belief system. So what does that mean? Where did the humans come from? So that's where these souls come in. So you have to start out with the idea that everything has this spiritual nature. Everything is in its essence spiritual, spiritual energy. The most primordial spiritual energy that exists is dirt, just physical dirt. Rock is solidified spiritual energy. Water is flowing spiritual energy. Fire is the release of spiritual energy. Crystals. Crystals are a condensed form of spiritual energy, which can be used. I know we've actually talked about that before on this show. So you, you have that concept with this spiritual energy. So the human soul is, is a form of spiritual energy. The human body is a form of spiritual energy. So the human body is what they called the life soul. And the life soul is made from all of the physical matter that the body's made of, dust, dirt, uh, all those elements coming together and coalescing, making the body. They believed that it had a soul and they called it the life soul. And they believed that death for most people the smart thing to do was to send the life soul, the body, back to its most primordial state. That is why they performed many, 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 well, they, they burned bodies. That's what they did. And then any bones that were left over, they grind them down to powder and then return them to the earth. So that was the main way, cremation, that they would do that. However, there was another soul. That was a soul that came from what they called the other world, not the happy hunting ground. That's a term that you'll occasionally hear, uh, but the other world. The other world is where spiritual souls come from. They called that the free soul because it is free of a body. The free soul is free of a body. So at birth, the free soul came from this, this other world and went into the body. And the path that it took, it came through a portal or a hole in the sky, which was the northern pole star, as far north as you could get. And then it, so it entered there through that portal, and then it would get on the Milky Way, which they saw this band of stars going across the sky, which they call, which we call the Milky Way. They called it a path of souls. The soul would then take a journey to the south, 
And then when it got to the south, it would enter another portal and go under the earth and around. And when it came up the next night, it would come to earth and then inhabit a body. It reversed that process at death. Once the body was cremated, it reversed the process. So let's talk about the, the actual stars and what the portals are. So at death, after the body is cremated or buried or whatever they're going to do with it, that would release the free soul. They would hold a ceremony. We Andrew and I talked a lot about that in the book Path of Souls, uh, some in Origins of the Gods, but a lot of it was in that other book. But what it did, what the soul did, is it took a leap of faith, this free soul. And it there's a specific time of the year during the winter, basically, when Orion and Orion's belt, the whole constellation, would go across the sky every night. At the, Basically, when darkness hit, you would see Orion on the eastern horizon. And then through the night, Orion would go across the sky and it would set into the western horizon every morning right before sunrise. So the soul had to time a leap and it would leap into Orion right before Orion set into the western sky. And it actually went into Messier 42, which is Orion's nebula. It's right below on the when it's setting in the west. Uh, Orion's nebula is right below the three belt stars. So then it would travel under the world, the underworld. That was the trip in the underworld. The same thing Egyptians said. It would come up on the horizon and then the next day, and then it would leap onto the Milky Way, go to the north, and then it would go to the star Deneb, which is the main star of Cygnus, and that was the portal out. So that's kind of a summary of it. You know, that's so fascinating because we're, it, when we get back, we're going to relate that to the cosmology of the, of the Egyptians, of the Native American community, even of the white shaman in South Texas, which Greg may not know about, but it was discovered by a friend of mine, and I know a lot about it, so I'll talk about that too briefly. It's going to be an extraordinary experience, so stay with us, Free Dreamlanders. We'll be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition, very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it. And I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion. Listen to it. Read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us, in you? Unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com. There's no place like it in the world. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, the soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness, 
and not in her in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. That's William Wordsworth's great poem, Ode on uh, <laughs> dear God, I'm uh, you know I've forgotten the name of it. Uh, it's uh, I, I'm quoting. I'm, I'm getting too old. Oh, oh, ode on intimations of immortality, recollected from early childhood. Hmm. All right. Now, on that note, let's now go to this extraordinary concept of the free soul and the life soul. And the journey to the heaven, to the heavens. The native world and the ancient world believed that man's soul had a destiny. Can you tell us a little bit about that destiny? Well, yeah, from their standpoint, they're very, very cautious uh, about talking about this other world. In fact, that's that's that is how the idea of a happy hunting ground even emerged when the uh, back in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s, when all these ethnographers, most of whom were in the beginning, they called the black robes because they were uh, Catholic friars and priests that came over. And some of them well, actually took an interest in Native American culture and they became ethnographers. They began collecting information and writing it down. And then some real ethnographers came in and collected the information. So when they did, and they talked about the the path of souls or death or whatever, what happens when you die. Uh, the shaman and the medicine people were deliberately deceptive. They didn't really put much out there. And uh, even when I talked to Lou White Eagle back in 1989, I talk about him in the book, too. He was a Cheyenne arrow priest. Uh, I remember vividly Lou sitting in our uh, den and I was talking to him about where do you go when you die? And and he put his hands up and he went, happy hunting ground. Uh, but that's that was the term that they used uh, to really shut down further conversation. You know, it's just like it is here, except you're always happy. And, you know, hunting was about food and getting your whatever you happen to need. Uh, but if you really dig, it comes out to it's called the other world. Uh, it is an ill-defined place that has all the souls. It reminds me of the Hebrew concept of the guff, which is a place where all the souls are stored. Uh, and But that's what it sounds like. But you do go back and you see all the people in your heredity, your hereditary line, all your all your predecessors, uh, and basically, I think you'd probably see all of your uh, future relatives too, because they would be there. The, um, you know, this journey, <laughs> this ancient journey, the 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 sky boats that were found in uh, Egypt, Egypt, uh, the the and it, the white shaman, and you know the the it was believed that this that. At a certain time of the year, when the Nile reflected the Milky Way, that souls would journey skyward in uh, in uh, in skyboats, and it in South Texas, so many thousands of miles from Egypt, along the banks of the Lower Pecos or nearby, uh, the Lower Pecos broadens out. And it is uh, in a sort of canyon. And at a certain time of the year, not so much now as the sky is being killed, uh, uh, the the Milky Way would shine down into the Pecos in the same way it did on the Nile. And a friend of mine, Jimmy Zintgraf, had a ranch along that country. He's, he's passed on now. and It's now a tourist site, but... Uh, he called up one day and said, Ridley, I found an incredible thing. Uh, part of a cave had uh, broken in during, a, they had a torrential downpour. And I have found what I think is the most extraordinary piece of rock art in North America. And I went there 
and I immediately knew what it was. It's come to be called the white shaman. And if you look at the archaeological uh, explanations for it in the museum in San Antonio and so forth, and at the tourist site, they're just hopeless. They're, they are written by people who are in the darkness that we started out talking about mm -hmm. on this show. They're living in that darkness. And, but the truth is, the sh what it depicts is the shaman sending souls upward on the journey. Now, can you tell us a little bit about that process? Because all of this culture, and I'm not going to call it a civilization because that's not what it was. All of these ancient cultures were about the journey of the soul. And we can now we can also get into the wonderful material about Jung and archetypes and all of that cool stuff. But let's first talk a little bit about the journey of the soul. And I have a question here. Can it be taken during this life? Do anyone, like I suspected when I was reading about White Eagle, that, um, th that when I was reading about White Eagle, that he may have taken this journey more than once in his life. Is that possible? Well, yes. Uh, the whole idea of, sh of sh shamanism is that through rituals that they perform, uh, different types of rituals and mental their in mental intentions and so on that you can, if you are vibrating correctly, and that's what the rituals are all about. The rituals are all about getting your vibrational frequency in tune, actually with the Schumann resonance, another story there. Uh, but anyway, then the shaman, if they could do that, they would use a psychoid pull. I, I know that's uh, people... Nobody listening to that so far uh, is going to understand it. We'll have to explain it. But that there's uh, think of it this way. There's an imaginary pole that sticks through the earth and it points toward the north. It, so it's all the way through the earth and it points toward the north. So Shaman knew that this pole was there and this pole vibrates. So they would get their their personal vibration in tune with the pull, and that allowed them to go up and down a spiritual um, hierarchy and connect with these other worlds, with the upper world powers and the lower world powers, or actually take the, the, their soul could be freed and take a trip to the other world. That is the belief system. There were some that went down to the lower world. That is true, too. Uh, you can call them black mag magicians or um, skinwalkers, that's what they were. Uh, and they usually were about revenge and hurting people. There weren't many of them. Uh, they were not allowed to live with the tribe if they were into that. Uh, but yes, shaman could do that. The process, I don't know if this is going to be visible. This is something I had done some years ago. This is like how they would send the soul to Orion. They saw Orion as a hand. And so they would literally hold this ceremony within uh, earthworks. The people would line up. There would be a cremation. And then the shaman would perform some kind of a ceremony that would literally send the soul, allow it to go. I know a lot about the ceremony, the specific ceremony, and a lot of artifacts that have been found that have been enigmatic forever uh, we understand what their use was in a lot of these ceremonies now. And yes, some hallucinogenic drugs were used, but they also used whistles and they used drumming and dancing and anything that would be repetitive. Uh, Lou White Eagle, you mentioned Lou, the a Cheyenne arrow priest. Lou came and stayed with my wife and I for 30 days back in the late 1980s. Uh, we talked a lot. And yes, Lou did do many, many mental transitions to the sky world. Absolutely. Uh, and we talked a lot about that. You know, we're not going to discuss alchemy at all, but this is hidden in the alchemical literature too, which is so deeply hidden. It's almost impenetrable. But Anthony Poole in his, one of his books, I think it's called Hearing Secret, or Secret Harmonies, says this, 
in reference to the alchemist Thomas Vaughan, where, as again Vaughan writes, the liberated soul ascends, looking at the sunset toward the west wind and hearing secret harmonies. Now, these people mm. still hear those secret harmonies. And, you know, Free Dreamlanders, speaking of secret harmonies, we have come to the end of our time together. And I so enjoy it, as always, having you with us. And I'm so glad you listened to Dreamland. I'll see you again next week when we're going to be with Paul Eno going into a vision of the paranormal that is completely different from anything you have ever heard before. You will be listening to a show with a man who physically has had the experience of bringing people who have levitated out of a chair down back into the chair with his own hands. What a show it's going to be. We're talking to Greg Little, Origins of the Gods, written with his friend and co-author Andrew Collins. And all I can say about this, all of the wonderful, brilliant books you two have done together, I am so glad you got together. I really <laughs> am, because the two minds just work in a kind of secret harmony, do they not? Free Dreamlanders, we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.